one of the most diabolical men to ever live in human history, was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He reigned as king right near the end of the Grecian rule from 175 to 163 B.C. Seventeen years later, the Grecian Empire fell to Rome. Antiochus persecuted the Jewish people viciously. Listen to one historian's description, and I quote, Antiochus commanded the Jews to substitute pagan worship of, idol, worship of idols for the worship of Yahweh. He ordered them to forget the law, to profane their Sabbaths and feast days, to stop circumcising infants, to offer the flesh of pigs and other unclean animals as sacrifices, and to defile themselves with all kinds of perverted practices. He had copies of the law torn and burned. He decreed that all Jews who kept copies of the law, obeyed the law, or had children circumcised should be put to death. He had circumcised babies hanged. Through his cruel policies, many righteous Jews were put to death. Whenever Antiochus found a mother who circumcised her little baby boy, he slew the baby and tied it around the mother's neck. Then he marched her through the middle of town to a cliff where she was thrown over and crushed. One time he tried to conquer Egypt, but he failed, so he was furious. He left Egypt to go back north to Syria, and as he returned, he came back through Israel, surrounded Jerusalem, and 80,000 women and children were tortured. Then he offered swine on the altar of God to Zeus, Eleazar was high priest at that time. He had seven sons. Antiochus murdered each one of them in diabolical ways. The first son was placed on a chariot wheel, and as the chariot drove and the wheel spun, of course, it killed him. The second son was killed by having spikes driven through his body. The third was tortured, and his tongue was cut off so he would bleed to death. The fourth one had his arms and legs cut off. The fifth one was placed on a chariot wheel like the first one. The sixth one was placed in a huge metal sort of like frying pan and was burned to death, fried to death that way. And then the seventh one was just thrown directly into the fire. Antiochus was a madman. He took to himself the title Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means Antiochus God Manifest. But the people called him, as a little play on words, Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the Maniac. He ordered all the sacrifices to cease. Then he set up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and had a female pig slaughtered on the altar. He shoved pork down the throats of the high priest. He attacked the Jews on the Sabbath because he knew they wouldn't fight back on the Sabbath. He was so cynical, so, such a, a maniac that he would dress up and disguise himself so that he could go out and mingle among the Jewish people to see if he could overhear their conversations to find out what they thought of him. He would often lie to them in deliberations and make peace treaties with them only to turn around and slaughter them. There's no doubt about the fact that Antiochus was empowered by, motivated by Satan himself. It seems that Satan was trying to use him to wipe out the Jewish people to prevent the Messiah from coming. 
Now, why am I telling you all of this history? Well, because at some point in the future, another man will come on the scene of human history. He will be very much like Antiochus, but if you can imagine it, worse. We are told about him in many passages of Scripture, and especially the one we want to look at in this message, and that is Revelation chapter 13. So if you're not already there, turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 10, although we'll only consider verse 1 in detail in this message, saving the other verses for uh, the messages that will follow. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience or perseverance and the faith of the saints. In chapter 12, we have already been given a behind-the-scenes look at the persecution of God's people that is to come in the future time known as the Tribulation Period. Chapter 13 now begins to show us how this will be played out on earth. So chapter 12 is the heavenly behind-the-scenes look, and then chapter 13, the look at what happens on planet earth. The point man of this persecution against God's people will be the monster of the end times who is described in the ten verses we just read. Notice how John begins the description. He says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. You may have noticed when I read verse 1 that your version reads a little differently. But that is because some manuscripts say in verse 1, He stood on the sand of the sea instead of I stood. The he then would be a reference to the dragon from verse 17 of chapter 12. We have a chapter break here, but as I've said many times, there were no chapter breaks when Scripture was originally written. They were added later. They are helpful, but they're not inspired. And so, if this is he stood, then the he, the antecedent, comes from chapter 12, verse 17, and it is a reference to Satan. 
Satan is pictured here as standing on the sand of the sea to call forth his man, the Antichrist. In the ancient thought, the sea was commonly the reservoir of evil. It was viewed that way because it was mysterious and it was fear-inspiring. So here, as this vision opens, John sees a beast rising up out of the sea. What or who is this beast? The answer is this. The beast is both a system and a person. The description that John gives us in the early verses of this chapter is of the world system of the end times. So you could say the beast is the revived Roman Empire. It's the final kingdom of man during the tribulation period. But at the end of verse 4, the personal pronoun him appears, and the personal pronoun is continually used after that. Verse 5 says he, verse 6 says he, verse 7 says him, verse 8 says him. So the beast is the world system headed up by the Antichrist, just as the Third Reich was headed up by Hitler. In other words, when you look back in history and you know what happened during Hitler's reign, you could say, well, who or what was responsible for all of the massive destruction, the persecution of the Jews? Well, Hitler would be a proper answer. The Third Reich would be a proper answer. It's both. And that's what you see here in Revelation 13. The beast is both a person and a system. It is the Antichrist heading up his monstrous system of the end times. John describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns. This is the same way Satan is described back in chapter 12, verse 3. The seven heads probably represent seven successive world empires. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the final kingdom of the Antichrist. The ten horns represent the ten kingdoms that will compose the final one world government. The book of Daniel portrays this idea a couple of times. In Daniel chapter 2, for example, there is a huge image of a man, and the ten toes on the feet of the image represent the ten kingdoms that will compose the final one world government. In Daniel chapter 7, there is a vision in which there are ten horns, and from these ten horns comes the little horn, which is none other than the Antichrist. Daniel 7.24 clearly says and removes all doubt when it says, the ten horns are ten kings. In fact, to fully appreciate and understand this scene here in Revelation chapter 13, we need to make sure that we understand the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. It is clearly background information in John's mind, or at least in the Holy Spirit's mind, as we have Revelation 13. So go back with me to Daniel chapter 7. Many portions of the book of Daniel, like many portions in the book of Revelation, many portions are apocalyptic literature, that is, literature using symbols, strange visions to communicate truth, and that is exactly what we see in the book of Daniel. So Daniel chapter 7 is where we want to focus to make sure that we have this background in our understanding so that we can make sure to understand Revelation 13. Here in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. This dream is basically picturing the same thing as the huge image of chapter 2. 
In Daniel chapter 2, we see a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had in which God revealed the future course of world history. In that dream, Gentile world empires were portrayed by a huge image that was awe-inspiring. It had a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, etc. And each part represented a world empire. Chapter 7 portrays these same world empires, but this time the picture is different. This time they are portrayed as wild, ferocious beasts. Why the difference? The difference can be explained by the perspective of each chapter. Daniel chapter 2 showed how man's empires appear to rebellious man. When man looks at his empires, he sees them as great and glorious images. But chapter 7 shows how man's empires appear to God. When God looks at man's empires, he sees them as wild, ferocious beasts. With that in mind, look at this seventh chapter. Notice how it opens. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. As I mentioned a moment ago, whenever the sea is used symbolically in Scripture, it represents one of two things. It either represents the world of nations or the abode of wickedness, or sometimes both thoughts are combined. Isaiah uses it that way. Daniel uses it that way. The book of Revelation uses it that way. So Daniel sees in this vision, as it unfolds, he sees the evil world in a state of turmoil. Verse 3, and four great beasts came from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. The four great beasts of Daniel's vision represent four world empires. The same ones that are pictured in chapter 2 by the the great statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The first beast, which was like a lion, represents the kingdom of Babylon. The kingdom of Babylon is portrayed by the head of gold back in chapter 2, but this time it's a lion. However, This wasn't an ordinary lion because, verse 4 says, on its back it had eagle's wings. Interestingly, winged lions were the national symbol of Babylon. At the entrances to the royal palaces stood sculptures of huge winged lions. The lion is the king of beasts and the eagle is the king of birds speak of Babylon's supremacy. The wings also signify swiftness in conquering. But as Daniel watched this unusual scene, verse 4 says, He looked until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. This is obviously a reference to chapter 4 of the book of Daniel, where God humbled Nebuchadnezzar by striking him with the mental illness of lycanthropy. The vision continues, or Daniel's description of it in verse 5, And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. 
The second beast Daniel saw was like a bear. This represents the Medo-Persian kingdom. In chapter 2, it was represented by the chest and arms of silver uh, of the image, but here it's represented as a bear. A bear is larger than a lion, but also a little slower. It is a fact of history that the Medo-Persian Empire became much larger than Babylon, but it was also slower in conquering the world. Daniel noted that this bear was raised up on one side. That indicates that in time, the Persian part of the empire began to dominate the Medes. And in fact, sometimes when you study history, it's just called the Persian Empire, not the Medo-Persian Empire. This bear also had three ribs in its mouth. Again, it's a fact of history that the Medo-Persian army conquered three great kingdoms, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. The end of verse 5 says this bear was commanded to devour much flesh. It's interesting that Medo-Persia was noted for its insatiable desire to conquer. That is why it grew much larger than the Babylonian Empire. In verse 6, we are introduced to a third world empire. Verse 6 says, After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This third beast was somewhat like a leopard, except that it had four heads and four wings. This beast represents the kingdom of Greece. This is parallel to the belly and thighs of bronze back in chapter 2. This beast was a fitting representation of the Grecian Empire. Leopards are famous for their speed, and the four wings emphasize the concept even more. Under Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire conquered the world in eight brief years, and Alexander was only 32 years old. In fact, one historian I read said that when Alexander conquered the world at age 32, he sat down and cried because there was nothing more to conquer. But Alexander died suddenly and unexpectedly, so there was a problem. Who's going to take over the throne? Who's going to be the king of this now worldwide empire? Well, no one was really qualified. No one could really follow in Alexander's footsteps. So the kingdom was divided into four parts by four leading generals, and that's why this leopard has four heads. Verse 7 says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This fourth beast was so unusual that no living animal could represent it. This beast was more terrifying than any animal Daniel knew. This beast represents the Roman Empire. Before talking about this empire, I want you to notice what God is doing here in this vision. God is moving chronologically through time. First, the Babylonian Empire. Then it was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, which was conquered by the Kingdom of Greece, which fell to the Roman Empire in 146 B.C. The emphasis Daniel places on the Roman Empire was its overwhelming destructive power. At the end of verse 7, Daniel says this beast had ten horns on its head. Remember that. 
because the beast in Revelation 13 also has ten horns on its head. We'll come back to that. Verse 8 says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Now over in verse 24 of this same chapter, we are given the interpretation of these ten horns. Look at verse 24. It says, The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. Now, beloved, it's very important to realize that this indicates that the Roman Empire would experience three distinct stages in its existence. First, the beast stage. Second, the ten horn or ten kingdom stage. Third, the little horn stage. The reason it's so important to understand this is because later in the chapter, an angel will tell Daniel when the Messiah will set up his kingdom, and when the Messiah will set up his kingdom is directly related to the three stages of the Roman Empire. So the ten horns are ten kings that will someday rule in the Roman Empire. But as Daniel watched, another little horn grew and uprooted three of the horns, or three of the kings. The, the end of verse 8 says that this horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As we'll see later in this chapter, this little horn is none other than the Antichrist who will one day rule the revived Roman Empire. Up until now, Daniel's vision focused on an earthly scene. He sees beasts, unusual beasts. But in verse 9, the vision shifts from an earthly scene to a heavenly scene. Notice verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. The phrase here in verse 9 that says the thrones were cast down or the thrones were placed, depending on your translation, has reference to an oriental custom in which multiple pillows were thrown down to form a throne for a ruler. So the picture is this. God is setting up his throne to administer judgment. And I want you to notice the title that Daniel gives to God in verse 9. He calls him the Ancient of Days. That's very picturesque in this context because that is, is picturing the fact that God has lived throughout the entire course of human history and therefore His judgment will not be secondhand. He won't go by someone else's description or someone else's opinion. God was alive during the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and He will still be sovereign during the revived Roman Empire. He is the Ancient of Days. Verse 10 says, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Daniel sees in this vision angels serving God and standing before his throne waiting to receive his commandments. How many angels were there? Well, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million, but there are thousands upon thousands more. 
The end of verse 10 says, The judgment was set and the books were opened. That is an indication, just like Revelation chapter 20, that God keeps records of human acts. He keeps books. He doesn't keep books because he will forget or he won't remember. He keeps them because it will be a verification that his judgment is absolutely, perfectly just and right. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So God judges the horn or the Antichrist. And at the same time, he judges all of man's empires. That's what verse 12 is describing. When the other empires were destroyed, they were absorbed into the next kingdom. We, we see that in the book of Daniel. When the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire in chapter uh, 5, what happens to Daniel? He goes right on into the next empire. So each empire absorbs some of the previous empire. But, uh, so in a sense, they continue to exist as a part of the next empire. But when God judges the revived Roman Empire, and the Antichrist, it will be complete. It will be thorough. It will not be made a part of the kingdom that will succeed it because the next kingdom is Messiah's kingdom and man's empires will have absolutely nothing to do with Messiah's kingdom. This judgment here that is described in these verses corresponds to the stone in chapter 2 that crushed the image's feet. This judgment seen by Daniel here in verses 9 through 12 will fall upon the Roman Empire during the seven-year tribulation period and it will reach its grand climax at the second coming of Jesus Christ to planet Earth. Verse 13, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. The statement there in verse 13 that says the Son of Man will come with the clouds of heaven, that statement really caused problems with ancient Jewish scholars who tried to interpret this verse. The reason it caused so many problems was because according to the Psalms, the clouds are the chariots of God. So they realized that whoever is being described here must be divine. This is deity. And yet, they also knew that this passage was referring to the human Messiah. And they couldn't figure out how this person could be divine and the human Messiah. Of course, we know now, we, we understand, because of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So the picture here is this. The Son of Man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, appears before the Ancient of Days for a specific purpose. He is there to receive the rule of the earth. And the Messiah's kingdom will last forever. Revelation 20 indicates that it will be here uh, for 1,000 years on the present earth, radically changed with the curse lifted, and then for eternity on the new eternal earth. As you might imagine, this vision was very disturbing to Daniel. So he asks one of God's angels the meaning of all of this. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, and the visions of my head trouble me. 
I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So basically this angel just summarizes the dream for Daniel. He says there will be four world empires or kings and eventually the rule of the earth will be given to the saints of God forever. After receiving this quick overview, Daniel wants some specifics concerning the fourth beast, the ten horns, and then that eleventh horn. So he asks about it. Verse 19, Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, And I also want to know about the ten horns which were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth speaking pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Maybe you noticed, and if you didn't, I want to, I want to draw it to your attention. Daniel mentions two details about this little horn that he had not given earlier in his description of the vision. Number one, first, he says that this little horn, remember this is the Antichrist, the little horn began small but grew larger or stronger than the other ten. Second, he mentions that this horn wages war against the saints and overpowers them. This goes on until God steps in and judges. Daniel had not told us those two details before. The angel responds to Daniel's request in verse 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. Here again, the angel indicates that the Roman Empire will experience three stages of history. First, the beast stage or conquering stage. This stage is very descriptive of the ancient Roman Empire that ruled during the New Testament era. But notice the second stage in verse 24. The second stage is the ten kingdom stage. So the angel is saying that eventually the Roman Empire will have ten rulers or ten nations. Beloved, this is extremely important because if you look back in history, you study history, the Roman Empire has never consisted of a ten-nation confederation. Therefore, this form of the empire must still be future. There will be a revival of the Roman Empire. And it's interesting, fascinating, that in the same area where Rome once ruled, Europe, there has been, off and on, since about 1980 actually, a ten-nation confederacy attempting to come into power. 
It has had a confederacy of less than 10 nations, exactly 10 nations, more than 10 nations. It's vacillated back and forth. But how interesting that right there in that part of the world, this kind of thing has been going on for several years. The third stage of this empire will be the little horn or antichrist stage. Verse 25 describes the character of this little horn, the Antichrist. Verse 25 says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. The angel says this horn will do three things. First, he will speak great words against the Most High. The end of verse 8 said the same thing. In fact, it's been fascinating for me to notice that, that almost every time this man is mentioned in Scripture, this is told about him. That, that lets us know how dominant this will be in his personality. For example, chapter 11, if you just turn a few pages over to the right, notice chapter 11, verse 36 says... Referring again to the Antichrist, the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Here we go. Shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. Over and over again, when Scripture mentions this man, it mentions his blasphemy. That's the first thing this horn will do from, uh, from what we were told here back in chapter 7. The second thing the angel says about this man is that he will wage war against the saints. The book of Revelation says that many of the saints will be martyred for refusing to worship this king. At the end of verse 25, Daniel says this will take place for a time and times and a half of time. In Revelation 13, we are told that this is a period of three and a half years. So for the final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, this ruler will claim to be God and will persecute the saints of God. And, beloved, this primarily, not exclusively, but primarily has reference to Israel. During the tribulation, God will bring Israel to her knees, and many will finally acknowledge the Lord Jesus as their Messiah, which they don't do today, not as a whole, by any means. As their own prophet said, they are stubborn and stiff-necked people. They refuse to believe the truth. But finally, God will break them. And they will not worship this man. As a result, they will be persecuted ruthlessly. The third action this ruler will do is to try to change the times and the laws. Now, what does that mean? I don't have any idea. I have read commentary after commentary. We can't be dogmatic as to what that means exactly. But he will try to usurp authority over two areas that are the exclusive rights of God. But he won't be able to continue indefinitely. Verse 26 says, But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. God will stop this ruler's big mouth and will give the rule of the earth to his son, the Messiah, and to the saints. And the Messiah's kingdom will never end. Daniel closes out this chapter, verse 28, by saying, This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. 
Maybe you can relate to Daniel's words here. We should treasure these truths in our heart, contemplate them, think about them. I can relate to what Daniel says here. I look forward with great anticipation to the day when Jesus will come to set up his kingdom. I treasure the time when God will judge rebellious man and give the kingdom to the saints. But it is troubling to think about all the pain and suffering people are going to endure during the tribulation. So all of this is necessary background to Revelation chapter 13. Let's go back there as we close this message. Lord willing, we'll come back to this 13th chapter, spend more time in it. But just to wind down for this message, Revelation chapter 13. So John sees this beast or monster coming up out of the sea. The end of verse 1 says, And on his head's a blasphemous name. This is explained for us further down in verses 5 and 6, where we see that it says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. You you see this so many times that it gets nauseating to read about. The the blasphemy of this man. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 describes the Antichrist as the man who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. If Antiochus Epiphanes was a maniac, and he was, this man will be the ultimate egomaniac. He will be the beast who heads up the monstrous satanic system of the end times, which is designed to destroy God's people and ruin God's program. And he will indeed cause enormous devastation. But do you want to hear some good news? He will eventually be destroyed. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist is going to head up a monstrous system in the end times. But he himself will come to an end simply by the breath of Christ's mouth and the brightness of our Lord's coming. I have to ask you a simple question. Whose side are you on? You're either with Satan or you're with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's really no in-between. When it's all said and done, that's what it's going to come down to. You're either, you're either with Satan or the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow as we close. Father, you are so gracious to reveal the future to us. You didn't have to do that. You could have chosen not to do so. And it, it is certainly true that you knew that there would be many things we w- wouldn't understand and many things we would mess up in our interpretation and explanation. And yet you saw fit to reveal the future to us. And therefore it is our duty, our responsibility, our privilege to study, to meditate upon, to delve into, to try to mine out the truth that you have revealed to us about the future. We acknowledge that there will be many things that won't be understood until the time of the end is here. 
and many things that will be unclear, fuzzy, uh, things that, that concerning which we are uncertain. But there is much that we can know about the future because you have said so much about it. And so we thank you for the opportunity we have. We thank you for the privilege we have to look into your word to see what you have revealed. And it gives us great encouragement and confidence to see that you have a plan for planet Earth, that there will be these world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, revived Roman Empire, but that's it. That is it. That will be followed by the kingdom of your Son. Finally, our prayers will be answered, the prayers that every one of us probably in this room have prayed at one time or another many times, and, and your people down through the centuries, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a day that will be. And so we pray it again. We pray it in obedience to our Lord Jesus who taught us to pray that way. We pray it in anticipation of that day. We pray it with eagerness. We pray it with longing in our hearts. The day when the wrongs of this world will be made right and Jesus will receive the glory the majesty, the honor due to him. And so once again, as we so often pray, we pray as John did at the, the end of this book, the book of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.